Hello, Cachimbonas. Welcome to episode 41 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. Thank you to the newest patron, Geneva. I appreciate all the patrons so, so much. Thank you to Prima Mayor, who gave a five-star rating and said that the podcast provides excellent information for everyone. Thank you so, so much. The ratings and reviews help the podcast gain visibility and more listeners. This episode is one that I've been so excited to share with you all. It is an interview that I did with Javier Zamora, the author of Solito, the first memoir of its kind written by a quote-unquote unaccompanied minor and his experience crossing the border, a seven-week journey from El Salvador to the U.S., We discussed how Javier found the strength as a shy person to write a memoir about one of the hardest times of his life, his journey to becoming, quote, ultra salvi, and the power of seeing Salvadoran Spanish in a published book. I hope that you all enjoy this interview. Bye. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. This is a great honor of mine, and I'm really excited to get into the book. Thank you for inviting me. It's a a great honor. So you talk a lot in the book about how you were really shy as a child, and then you ended up putting out the story about one of the hardest and most vulnerable times in your life. How did you get to that point of being a shy kid who doesn't know what to say sometimes to someone who wants to share their most vulnerable story with the world? Well, it took years. You know, I was a shy kid. And then this happened when I was nine years old. I make it to the United States. And I'm still shy for a few years until the hormones kick in and I'm a teenager. (laughs) And in between nine and I want to say seventh grade, which I would have been 11, I, I'm also undocumented. And my parents are telling me to not tell anybody yeah. my status. And that also affected how I interacted with the world. So I was even more shy. But then my parents got divorced. And once the hormones kicking, I was just angry that mm-hmm. I couldn't tell anybody that my parents were divorced and about my status and that Mm. it just becomes a thing up until I'm 18. And as a protective mechanism for myself, and part of my story is also a deep uh, form of assimilation. And I think Mm. that I was just trying to hide that I was an immigrant. And Mm -hmm. so from the ages of nine until I start writing poetry when I'm 17, I also don't tell anybody anything, not even myself about what I had lived through. And mm. so once I'm 18, I think everything just wanted to come out. And so the opposite of being shy is being extroverted. So then I became like ultra salvi, I guess, because I hadn't uh, been in tune with where I'm from and my homeland and even speaking Spanish. So then when I start writing, I become ultra aware 
that was something I enjoyed about reading the book the most is how much Salvi slang or dialect is in the book. It just made me realize one, how many of the things that my mom says are specifically Salvadoran. And it was a bit trippy because it was, I feel like it's one of the first times seeing that in, in print, a published text in that way um, in an English print text. And that was really cool for me. And I did tweet about, about this too, about how my 86 year old grandpa was reading the book. My mom got the Spanish language version when I told her about it. And then he just picked it up on his own. And I've never seen him read a book. Like he reads the newspaper, but he's never read a book. You know, that takes like, I guess a certain amount of attention and your book captivated him. And I think it's because you are telling a story that before this, like really hadn't been told and definitely not with such detail and such precision and with like such accuracy regarding Salvi culture. And I just really appreciate your contribution to Salvi literature because it's a pretty monumental one. <laughs> thank you. And thank you. And thank you for that's your grandpa? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's my my abuelo. Sick. That, <laughs> I'm like, I know I commented on it with like the teary emoji. You know, it brought me joy and tears because that's that's what it's about, right? That's what being a writer is about. It's about putting the stories that we yearn for and that we always wanted to see reflected on the pages. Yeah. And and moments like that is why. I'm doing this. And that's why the little shy kid turned into an extrovert and I'm sharing it with the world. So thank you. And I think because that no longer shy kid, but this angry kid, because anger is a huge part of my story as well as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Once I started to read, which, you know, I wasn't, I didn't really like reading or writing. I was more into like math. I wanted to be an engineer <laughs> and then calculus happened. Yeah. Oh my and then I couldn't I relate, understand dude. calculus. Yeah, dude, I relate. <laughs> and so then I started reading. And one of the first things I, I Googled, I think this is when I was in like a freshman in high school, was Salvadoran writers. And not many came up. It was all like Salvadoran writers in El Salvador, like mm -hmm. not in the United States. And yeah. that also made me angry. And then I started writing poetry. And at the time that I started writing poetry, there was, I think, I want to say one poet who had just published a book or was about to publish a book. And she's from the mission, uh, Leticia Linares. And that was it. So that's yeah. all we had. And even when there was some sort of representation, I know we talk about Latinidad and like whatever, but there's a lot of Mexican representation, Puerto Rican mm -hmm. representation and a Cuban representation. And that's not the Spanish that we speak. So mm -hmm. even though the stories might be similar, they're not really our Central American stories. And so that's why once this comes out and even when I published my first book of poems, the language was something that needed to be the way that it is. Yeah. And, and not translated well. Yeah. And it's actually, this is actually a very interesting moment for Salvadoran poetry. I, because, well, I actually do feel like there has always been a connection between leftists and poetry, you know, like uh, Roque Dalton, for example. And now there's like 
really a proliferation of Salvadoran or like Salvi, Salvadoran American poets like Christopher Soto, Cynthia Guardado, Alexandra. Oh, I heard the last... Yeah, I was like, yeah. yeah. Jessica Salgado. Jessica Salgado, yes, of course. And it's just a really exciting time to be like a reader and appreciator of, of Salvi poetry right now. Yeah. And, and not only in poetry, like in fiction. Yeah. I know. I just wanted to give poetry its little moment, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, uh, Christopher uh, Soto Loma, I call them Loma, just wrote like this article in, in the LA Times about like the Salvador Renaissance. Or, or, yes. Or like oh, and wait, I need are, to read that. I don't think I read that. We are having like quite the moment, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think this happened randomly. You know, we are the second biggest Latino group in the United States. It has been coming. You know, we have an astronaut in space who is stuck up there right now. (laughs) We have like frozen pupusas in fucking Whole Foods shit. (laughs) You know, know, we... in Those are a little suspicious, though. Yeah, they are. suspicious. Uh, But in, in a weird way, you know, we are part, like we have been there. And whether we have been loud about yes. it or not or very um visible about it we yeah. are in in the spaces that we need to be at least regarding the art you know one of the snl writers is salvador as well who's that the one who wrote those spookies oh oh wait wait who julio are you talking torres. about oh julio, julio torres. torres yeah 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 i know this is a very exciting moment so to go back to solito you start the book when you're nine years old and it's really clear through the voice that you use and then also through you know like the inner narrating of your thoughts like how little you are like you're like scared to use the flush toilet (laughs) and how were you able to write like a 400 page detailed accounting of that journey when you were like so little or like from an adult perspective how i can talk about in yeah, because you wrote, you wrote it like way yeah you wrote it now but you had to reflect back write it in like the and because it was like very convinced like it feels like it was written by like you as a nine-year-old i think part of the trauma that i experienced and the trauma wasn't only you know the nine weeks that i described mm-hmm. i think it does something to a kid when they don't grow up with a dad. You know, I didn't grow up with my dad. He left when I was one. I didn't remember him. It mm-hmm. does something to a kid when they don't grow up with their mom. Mm-hmm. Well, he left when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And that does something. By that, I mean that parts of you get frozen in time. Mm-hmm. Because those are traumatic moments for anyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then for that kid, who's already been affected by his parents' departures and to put him through the trauma that I experienced uh, just within the nine weeks, it freezes. To me, I think that that trauma froze a part of me, like five-year-old me, nine-year-old me in my brain. And if you were to be my close friend, I think the biggest compliment, but also kind of like a red flag that I went through childhood trauma is that I act like a kid. But I don't allow those parts of me to come out until I trust you. And if you read the book, I have deep trust issues that I'm very aware of now. 
But which another way to answer this is that it took a lot of me to trust myself and to reveal those parts of me on the page. And I think had I not gone through trauma, it would have been very difficult to sustain that childhood uh, voice or, or that or that kid voice. Um, but because of my trauma, I want to say that I'm more in tune with that part of me than your average adult. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why the book is so powerful because it's a story that hasn't been told from like a first person narration perspective it's always a story told by somebody else and to really nail like that voice of a younger child i think it's really really dope and i do want to say that you know reina grande did has told her own story um the difference is that she's mexican but, mm-hmm. but this this would be like the first central american way of telling our own stories in that voice um, yeah so it's not it's not the first um, it has been done, um, but I think it's it's important to to keep it keep it going. Yeah, no, and honestly, it it like feels nice sometimes for someone else to have done it first. It's like, oh god, they, you know, it's like a little weight off the shoulders. So speaking about the difference between the Mexican experience and the Central American experience. Something I really appreciated that came out in the book is one like discrimination towards Central American migrants on the part of Mexican nationals. Um, and then also in the longstanding complicity of the Mexican police and their border forces with the U.S.'s immigration agenda, which I was it, it was just educational for me to learn about because. I feel like I've only more recently come to understand Mexico's role in like, the U.S. deportation machine. And so it was educational to know that complicity has been going on for a long time and that there's long been policing of Central American migrants in Mexico. And that like, as a result of that, that like part of the Central American migration story is actually having to learn Mexican slang and like cultural things like, like music and movies and just like coming up with a backstory so that if you do get deported, you can get deported to Mexico and not all the way back to El Salvador. And I feel like, like earlier you mentioned Latinidad and I feel like, you know, this book is so necessary for complicating the Latinidad conversation because I don't really think that we have yet talked about power dynamics between Latinx ethnicities and the ways in which the power of the Mexican nation state is like a powerful discriminatory force, not on par with the U.S., but like kind of. And then how that trickles out into interpersonal dynamics, too. Do you think that like we we talk about that enough? Absolutely not. That's the leading um, question. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. I, yeah. think, I think being Definitely. Central American, at least like you and I both grew up in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think I would jump ship and say in a broader sense, growing up in the West Coast mm-hmm. as a Central America, as a non-Mexican, you come up against the hegemon. 
yeah. outside of like the being the American hegemon, like whiteness that we all live by definition of living in this country. Mm-hmm. At one point, you come up to the hegemon in immigrant communities, which mm-hmm. in the West Coast is Mexicanness. Yeah, like Mexicanness. I'm not saying is whiteness, but Mexicanness no. because of whiteness acts like a sort of gatekeeper. And and that's what racism does to us, right? And and then there's this like idea of and this is like capitalism, any power structure. If you don't have power, the only power the only power oh. that, that, that you have is to take down the next person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see this, um, and I've experienced it, and this has been happening since my own parents' migration. You know, both of them would tell me stories about what it was like for them going into Mexico. There's a deep anti-Central American-ness within Mexico that is years, decades long. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that it's historic as well. You know, we mm-hmm. disbanded and became different countries a year after Mexico became. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there, I think there's this deep-rooted sense that we escaped. And I would go even deeply historic, you know, as indigenous people, the Nahuatl escaped the Aztec rule of the time. And then we migrated south. And all of this, I think we're, we're talking about racism, power structures now in modern day, and it's capitalism. Mm-hmm. And we have to talk about that. And not only between nationalities, like whatever, but also we, within mm-hmm. our own made-up country that is El Salvador. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, this is, mm-hmm. I think this is just a byproduct of existing in a world ruled by white. Mm-hmm. And whiteness mm-hmm. doesn't have to be a white person. You know, it could be your own. Somebody that looks like you is just like a state of mind. And that is what Latinos struggle with. Because we're not a race. We look like all shades, you know. Mm-hmm. But some of us do look more like something than others. And yeah. that and that's where the racism comes in. And and the anti Indianess. You know, I, I include that passage for a reason. And we get taught this by the adults, even when we're children. Yeah, You know, we, we learn those bad words that are not bad words because everybody uses them. And we learn how to discriminate subtly. And, and those are yeah. conversations that, that we need to have as a community. Definitely. And I do also want to point out the role of the Salvadoran government in creating the anti-Indigenous sentiment, like with the 1932 massacre of Indigenous people in Western Salvador, you know, like, Indio became a bad word because if you were identified as such, like you were killed. It was like a part of like government, the government trying to control labor uprisings, which a lot of which were led by indigenous people. And I think that context is critical too, because yes, like, you know, these things are passed down culturally, intergenerationally, but then also like there is a root of government violence there that started that. Yeah. And it's power and racism and i don't know what what has also been healing for me and i think part of writing this book as well and also part of my mental health journey has been to reclaim you know my indigeneity 
Mm. And and being Salvadoran, that's super difficult. That is, yeah. Because we have centuries Mm -hmm. of just annihilation. Mm -hmm. And yet, they're in in the same western part of El Salvador. Mm -hmm. That language has managed to survive. Yeah. There is not thousands of native speakers. There are hundreds, but they're still there. No, yeah, which is powerful. Yeah, and where I'm from, sadly, you know, the I'm from the Nonualcos in La Paz, and in that area, the language or that dialect of Nahuatl is gone. Mm. And what needs to happen now, I think it's for us who were born in Cuscatlan, is to acknowledge that loss. Yeah, and, yeah. And once you acknowledge the loss, you can begin to rebuild mm. and and just to like grieve grieve what has been done by multiple states you mm-hmm. know multiple regimes and even before there were countries it was the spanish empire mm-hmm. but then also acknowledge the resistance and then also the third step would be to acknowledge that there is reclaiming and that there 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 are like we're not gone like yeah. the senses would like us to be lived believe you know mm-hmm. there are still black people there are indigenous people in El Salvador mm-hmm. and that they're surviving yeah the book is narrated in English I mean but there's also a Spanish language version as well but the punctuation sometimes is from Spanish you know like it'll be like like you ask a question and it'll be like the upside down question mark and like the question mark. Why did you write it that way? And like, what was that meant to represent? Yeah, I wrote the book of poem first and that I think from the moment that I started to write poetry when I was 18, poetry to me was a way to break down the deep assimilation that I had been living from the ages of 11 till 17. You know, and and the way that my brain wanted to fight that was also grammatically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was I went to school in Spanish in El Salvador until I was in fourth grade, and I really deeply hated how when you read out loud in Spanish, the question or the exclamation doesn't announce. I mean, in English, doesn't announce. In Spanish, it does. It you does, know that yeah. you I know really like that, that you're gonna begin. Yeah. You know that you're going to begin to ask a question, so you change your tone mm-hmm. if you're reading it in Spanish. But in oh, English, yeah. mm-hmm. you like begin to, to read a sentence, and you're like, oh, shit, now I'm noticing a question. <laughs> I should go up and ask it like a question, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it was like a, this surprise. <laughs> and, as a, and as like a, a non-English speaker, yeah. and when teachers were asking me to read out loud, it would be embarrassing. Mm. because I, I wouldn't read it the right way. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, just like the announcing of how to read or like the instructions of how to read is what I missed about, you know, the Spanish uh, punctuation. So mm. I wanted to include that uh, whenever uh, I wrote a book. And it has been part of all the books that I've written. And I think it's going to be uh, my thing. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You 
start the book dedicating it to Patricia, Carla, and Chino, who were like your core part of the six that crossed with you. Um, and you said that you never saw them again, but have they reached out to you now that you've published the book and you're like all, all over the news and such? Not yet. Damn. You know? And Damn. one, like, I don't know if they're alive. I don't yeah. know if they're still in this country. I don't know where right. they are. Two, I yeah. don't know if, if they if they're aware of the book. And three, even if they were it's pretty high profile at this point. To to know of the book. You know, we're talking about trauma. You know, for for twenty yeah. years for twenty years, me who wrote the book didn't want to think about anything yeah. that I describe in the book. Or yeah. the people that literally helped me survive. And this is me who has the privilege of having a therapist, and like has the privilege that, you know, immigrant lives in this country don't really look like mine. And I am very aware of that. And now imagine somebody who is statistically probably doesn't have those privileges. Like still people, some people in my family are still undocumented. They haven't mm-hmm. had the best time in this country. They can't afford yeah. to go to therapy. You don't want to be reminded of the trauma that you've been running away from for mm. 20 plus years. Mm. So I could, I completely understand that even if they knew and even if they knew and actually picked up the book and read it, I can see why they wouldn't reach out. I can see that too, because I feel like, I don't know who said this, but somebody said that like part of Salvadorness is like this culture of silences or these structured silences that that's what it was. That's what the word was. It's structured silences because even though they're silent, they like structure how we live our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get that too. I mean, I get that. I get that. I get that. I also <laughs> avoid my own traumas. So I understand. I totally yeah. understand. Avoidance is always easier. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it is a survival mechanism as well. Um, not going to romanticize it, but it is a way that people get by. The last question I wanted to ask is you start the book with a quote from The Body Keeps the Score about how our bodies are texts. And re- so because of that, remembering is the reincarnation and then you quoted Lacey Abrego's book sacrificing families which is like her sociological study about the effects of family separation through migration in Salvadoran families and how specifically being apart from your mother as a child is something that instills you with a sense of constant longing why did you choose those two quotes to start the book? And what does it say about like why you wrote the book? Up until now, every epigraph that I've chosen or every quote to me is a book or a writer that has made my writing and my life possible. Mm. Wow. You know, Roque Dalton. My first book is pretty much old Roque Um because, you know, left-leaning Che Guevara t-shirt-wearing teenager me loved that there was a Salvadoran out there who did it and pretty much won, like, the biggest prize in writing when he was in his 30s and then started, wanted to start a revolution. Yeah. And, I, and like... Pretty and iconic. Also, and also wrote 
not trying to impress the right. elite wrote like how we speak mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. person right. writing he had a lot of problems um yeah but but he was very okay. of the people and spoke like the people mm-hmm. there's that the people that you've mentioned you know and then it's lacy abrego you know at one point you know i didn't major in english i wanted to be a historian because there was at one point in high school or even when i was in college i learned this very absurd thing that in salvadoran universities you couldn't become a historian like history wasn't being taught that changed in 2010 now you can but that is so telling of who we are and like what you just said about thailand yeah like we that's good our government structurally doesn't want to acknowledge the things that yeah. have happened yeah. because if we do the government will realize how fucked up they have been are mm. and will continue to be i mean yeah. i think their fears like people will realize how corrupt the government has been and want to do something all you know just want to start anew um i think that's why the government doesn't want to teach that history yeah and when you don't teach the history somebody can come and like capitalize on that exact same thing that you just said oh yeah everybody's yeah. corrupt so i'm doing something new when in reality they're not it's yeah. doing the same shit that everybody has but anyways lacy abrego showed me while i was beginning to like while I still kind of wanted to be a historian what could be like mm-hmm. a life and like a dedication to the studying of our people which i would say that she is the quintessential sociologist like professor that is Salvadoran mm-hmm. and now like leads the Cano plus Central American Studies <laughs> department which she was part of like this huge controversy because the Chicanos there didn't want to include Central American as part of that department. So talk about like this deep rooted I don't know fear of giving into otherness even within our latinidad. So there's that that you can look into or anybody listening. But Lacy is the shit. You know, Lacy She's been on the podcast. Going, yeah. And Lacey is showing us, you know, our generation how to be and learn about ourselves. And For so sure. I wouldn't be here without her work. Same with, you know, reading that book that also has its problems, The Body Keeps the Score. There are much better books about mental health out there. But at the time, you know, it it did it did a lot to me in recognizing that I suffered childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And that was just an eye opener. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Those those two texts are actually like super powerful for me as well. I own both of those are on my bookshelf. To my left right now. <laughs> so, thank you so much for your time. I don't want to take up too much of your Friday afternoon. The last question that I ask this season is what is something that has inspired you lately? Lately. Yeah, it's got to be recent. Actually, <laughs> Just yesterday, I went to the Tucson Moca and saw an exhibition by Raven Chacon, who is the first indigenous composer to win a Pulitzer. I think he won like two years ago. Oh wow! And isn't it? It's like I I was like moved to tears. Wow! Because it's like in a room, you have three sets of 
like kind of what I just talked about, a song from an indigenous tribe, and one of them's talking about what happened. And then in the and on the other screen, you have another song by a different tribe about asking the river to rescue them because they're mm. river people. And then the third song is about where we're going, that even the white king died and we all die and we're all going to heaven. And he gave them all the exact same drum and gave them each their own, um, I don't know what you call that, but they, they hit the drum. The drumstick? Yeah, the drum drumstick. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so there's that one drum and those are the only three performances and songs that were played on that drum. And the drum is there in the room with you. And then on the other, once you turn your back and the songs are still playing behind you, he has created um, songs to, I want to say, 13 composers that have showed him how to be. And so, Mm. and I think they're all women, Uh, indigenous women who have showed him the way of how to perform their performers, their writers, um, and his sister, who's also a musician. And so he gave him the scores. And as you're looking at the scores with like the history of what's behind you, I was like, holy shit, like he's doing it. He is showing us how, like, even though these people, us as indigenous people, as like whatever immigrants, even though we have suffered, we can use that suffering and create something and guarantee our existence for the future. And I was just crying. And so if you ever have a chance to look at yeah, it, I was like, wow, I, have to, I guess I have to go right songs. now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. I love that. Okay. Well, well also like, do you go by Jose or like, why is that name in your email? Just like it's to be my, fancy. It's your government no, it's name. My, it's my, yeah, it's my government. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I also go by my cause... middle name, but I don't yeah, put my government that's... name in my email because I'm not trying to go by my government name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to change it. I'm not tech savvy. <laughs> so I wish I could change it, but I don't know how. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Okay. Well, um, I mean, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And I hope that when you're back in Tucson, we can meet in person. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for creating this for us. You know, you're a cachimbona. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Okay, bye. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, this is an episode that was published first to the Patreon community. The Patreon is a way for you to support the podcast. 
This is a passion project. It is something that with the Patreon, I can break even on and you can join the community for three, five or $10 a month. And apart from supporting the podcast, you get early access to episodes like these and you get exclusive access to the Lit Review, which is an online book club where I invite other women of color to discuss novels, nonfiction. It's the best way to support the podcast. I know that this is a difficult economy and that you might not have the money right now to become a patron. So I want to suggest a completely free way to support the podcast, which is by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I post the episode links there. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas.